Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek Halloween Spooktacular. I'm your host, Pado. Thank you so much for the support thus far. Uh, it's really appreciated. I have been working a lot trying to get these reviews out to you guys. I thoroughly enjoy it though. It is so much fun to revisit some horror films that I love and to also, I suppose, find new horror films that I'm not that familiar with. Um, I've recorded a review for Halloween 2018. It was a spoiler discussion that I did upon its release last October. Uh, and I just uploaded, re-uploaded that one for you guys. I recorded it and uploaded it on Facebook initially. But um, yeah, it's a film that I wanted to talk about. I do apologize for the sound quality for those who have heard it and for those who haven't yet listened to it. It is um, a bit iffy, but it's still okay. It's still it's still understandable. So um, I've recorded that one. And then uh, The Super and Jackals. Thank you to Eagle Entertainment who sent me those two on DVD. Uh, those are two horror films that I had no idea about. And I did actually enjoy myself watching. So I recorded that review as well. And I enjoyed both of those ones. So check that one out if you haven't already. And thanks to Shock Entertainment, I was able to check out Killer Clowns from Outer Space and Fright Night 1985. Uh, I've recorded my reviews and uploaded those ones as well. Two films that are staples, I think, in the 1980s horror comedy genre, I would call both of those films. And two films that Shock Entertainment have masterfully restored on Blu-ray. So thank you again to Shock Entertainment and check out those ones if you haven't already. And thanks for the support thus far, guys. It's been awesome. And I really appreciate it. And I'd love to know what you think of any of those films. So keep the emails coming to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com. Even drop a review on iTunes, Spotify, however you're listening to the podcast. Um, And let me know your thoughts on those films. Let me know what you think of the podcast in general. Rate the podcast down below. means a lot when you guys do that. just helps me get noticed amongst the onslaught of fantastic podcasters that are out there releasing similar content. And yeah, it just means a really, really great deal to me, guys. So thank you again. But today's episode is um, two films that I was uh, really excited to talk about, actually, after I saw them. Uh, The Monster Squad. Thanks again to Shock Entertainment for providing me this Blu-ray. It's a masterful restoration in 2K. Uh, It looks fantastic. Um, Has a bit of that film grain still, which I love. It just makes it feel like a 1980s flick and it definitely just looks a lot better than what it would have on VHS or DVD if you had copies of it on either of those platforms. But Shock Entertainment have been re-releasing cult cinema classics from the 1980s, 1990s, the 2000s even, um, with The Ring 2, a recent addition to the cult cinema collection. But yeah, guys, uh, I am very excited to talk about this one. And Tales of Halloween, a 2015 epic pictures anthology that consists of eight parts. Eight parts that are inconsistent with one another, but eight parts that I enjoyed nonetheless. And once I picked up this film from JB Hi-Fi, I found it for $4.95 in a clearance barrel. And I thought, you know what? This is a Blu-ray I want to add to my collection. And I love a good anthology, Trick or Treat being one of my favorites from Michael Dougherty. Um, And a few filmmakers here in this anthology that um, pop up, Neil Marshall being one of them the director of the Descent films and more recently the 2019 Hellboy reboot. Uh, Give or take that last one, but the Descent uh, films, especially the first one, is one of, I think, the modern classics in the genre, a very spooky and well-crafted film. And yeah, seeing his name attached to anything always sparks my interest. But those are the two films that I'm checking out and the ones that I am reviewing, well, I've checked them out already, (laughs) that I'm reviewing for this episode. So... Let's get stuck into it. The Monster Squad is directed by Fred Decker uh, from Night of the Creeps fame, which is another 1980s horror staple that I adore, Um, and was written by Shane Black, actually, from, I suppose people would know him from uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the writer and director of that cult classic uh, film, which is a very good film if you haven't checked it out, and more recently, The Nice Guys in 2016, which is one of my favorite films of all time, I'm happy to say that. I love that film. And unfortunately, the 2018 Predator reboot, a film that I was pretty happy with upon release, but not fantastic on um, on replay. It doesn't really hold up. But uh, Shane Black is, I suppose, a horror maestro. 
I guess. He loves the horror setting, so his influence is definitely felt here. Uh, the cast consists of Andre Gower, Ryan Lambert, Robbie Kiger, Stephen Mort as Sean's dad, with Tom Noonan as Frankenstein's monster and Duncan Ryger as Dracula. The plot follows a group of monster fanatics who attempt to save their hometown from Count Dracula and his monsters, Frankenstein's monster, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. Um, Universal's classic horror, I suppose, library, um, the initial library. There's some great little references here to that classic monsters library. And this is definitely a film that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. And I think it is because it is very hard to access. Until this re-release on Blu-ray, this film has pretty much been forgotten about, which is a shame because it's such an enjoyable little family-friendly horror flick from 1987. Uh, and it is such a well-crafted film. It is that classic 1980s film, um, and it is definitely aimed more at a family audience. There are some themes, and a few people die that um, is a bit iffy, but it is a film that definitely has that that family-friendly vibe that was featured in a lot of films in the 1980s, especially in, I suppose, Gremlins, Goonies, Stand By Me, and films of that vein. Um, I, I think more because of the camaraderie between the kids, but also just in themes in general. And I think it was um, a testament to the filmmakers at the time. Fred Decker, unfortunately, hasn't made a great deal of film since I, I guess since then and it's a shame because he's such a I think prolific filmmaker in the sense that he understands the genre and I think that is the the key here he was um, pretty prolific in the 1980s I suppose because of his b-movie I guess b-movie as influence his direction of Night of the Creeps is probably one of my favorites um, I really enjoyed that and I really enjoyed what he does here. He lends a lot to the genre in general, that B-movie horror genre. And he's, yeah, fantastic. Last film he directed, I'm just, sorry, I just dragged a bit then just so I could look this up. The last film he directed uh, was Robocop 3 in 1993. But since, he wrote uh, The Predator with Shane Black, which I think says a lot. Uh, it's not a very good film. Um, and he was also a writer on Star Trek Enterprise. But since then, he hasn't really done a great deal. And it's a shame. He was also a writer of Tales from the Crypt, which is a fantastic little anthology uh, TV show that also had a couple of films. I own both of the films, luckily, on um, Blu-ray. And two films that I'm a big fan of as well. So one day I'll get into those two. But for the meantime, we have The Monster Squad. So, my positives for the film. Uh, the tone, like I mentioned briefly, this movie has a gleefully fun tone. It's just awesome. I, I just really enjoyed the general premise and the way that the tone is captured. It's very lighthearted and a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed that. I love the 1980s setting. It's fun, lighthearted, and doesn't take itself too seriously, which I think is key with films like this. You take your yourself too seriously, you would end up with the Mummy film that came out in 2017 with Tom Cruise, which is just fucking terrible. And I think that's the difference between a film like this and a film like that. The Mummy was trying to replicate the success of the MCU and tried too hard to be funny when it wasn't, but also didn't try hard enough to be just relevant in general. And I think that's the disappointing part of the film, unfortunately. Um, the cast. These kids have great chemistry with one another and are quite memorable in this film. Sean is a classic. Um, he just reminded me of any character from any 1980s film but i think that's what you needed you needed that guy that takes the lead on on the situation and i really enjoyed him i thought he was great um i really enjoyed ryan lambert as rudy as well he felt like an extension from the lost boys cast but i did really dig him in the film uh just that classic leather jacket wearing character and you have a look for lost boys all of them wearing you know the leather jacket from from that time period and you also had The Blob, which I watched recently as well. And Kevin Dillon's character in the whole of that film has the leather jacket on too. So it's just a trope of the 1980s cinema, I suppose. We look at it now and think that's kind of goofy, but back in the day, that's what was cool. And I think it just plays well in that time period. And it feels very, very, um, I suppose, prominent in that time period and a staple, if you will. 
the monsters themselves, I think my favorite monster design here is the Wolfman. Frankenstein and Dracula are classic designs. There's nothing that's done that's completely different, but I think the Wolfman, he's just, I don't know. It was just, cause he's just regular size. He hasn't changed his size, which is classic Wolfman. But, um, you know, he's just hairy and he's a lot more strong now than what he was. And I really enjoyed him in this film. I thought he was very good. And you get a bit of a, um, you feel a bit of a sense of um, empathy for him as well, which is, and sympathy too. And I think that's, that's part of the, part of the charm as well. And I, I don't know, it was just really well crafted and I really enjoyed that. I also love the creature from the Black Lagoon, but in that original monsters category and catalog, I guess that was my favorite character. I just always enjoyed the creature from the Black Lagoon as a film. It was just a very enjoyable, weird, but very enjoyable film in those original um, monsters films and that universal era of horror. Uh, and I think the references are great here. There's a few references to Bella Lugosi and um, like I mentioned, the Stephen King reference on the kid's shirt, Stephen King Rules, which is just blatant, but it's it's a really nice little reference there. I also enjoyed the humor in the film. I did find myself laughing a few times. I love that Frankenstein just joins the monster squad. I think that's hilarious. So you just have like these kids running around doing their things and Dracula sends Frankenstein to kill the kids, but he becomes their friend and helps them. I just really enjoyed that. It was quite funny. And it was a nice little bit of emotion too with Sean's sister, um, I suppose, becoming friends with Frankenstein. It was just really well done. Uh, Stephen Mork's character, or Mort, I don't know how to say his name, uh, who plays Sean's dad. I liked his character a lot as the police chief. You have the a bit of unrest at home, I suppose. So that's why you can see Sean's obsession with the monsters because it's a bit of an escape from reality. There's a really nice scene with Sean and his dad on the roof watching the cinema, uh, the drive-in cinema release of Groundhog Day Part 12, which is a reference to... Um, Ground, uh, not a reference to Groundhog Day as a movie, but it's a reference to the, I suppose, the onslaught of horror sequels we were getting at the time. And it was more commentary on that. And I think there's a bit of satire there. And it was making fun more specifically of Friday the 13th, which I found really funny. And I enjoyed that little moment between Sean and his dad just with the binoculars watching the release of this film on the drive-in that's close to their house and tuned into the radio, which I thought was quite clever. And yeah, I just really enjoyed that scene. And I think um, Stephen Mork's character was um, well fleshed out. There's a bit of marital um, distress at home. So we get that aspect as well. But we also have, I guess, that... Um, I, I don't really know, like the... Not just unrest in his personal life, but also at work as well. And I think the monsters attacking the town, as absurd as it is, it's sort of a distraction for him to get away from his home life too. I'm going deep and that's probably not what Fred Decker and Shane Black were trying to do with this film, but that's definitely the way I took it. And I just thought it was a lot more uh, thematic than what I was expecting from a film of this nature. But I do have a little bit of a negative of this film. The plot holes in this film are gaping. There are huge plot holes in this film. Why does Dracula drive a car? He turns into a bat. He doesn't need to drive a car. Don't really understand that. It's a cool car, but... It's very, it's not very inconspicuous. He's driving around in a fucking hearse, so he looks ridiculous. And he's a bat, and a bat's less obvious than what what a bloody hearse is. You can fly around as a bat and it would look normal, but if you're driving around in a creepy hearse, yeah, there's something iffy about that, especially if you're driving around all hours of the day or all hours of the night. You're probably either a serial killer or you're Dracula. You know, so if I see a hearse driving around at that time of night, I'll be thinking, there's something iffy about that. And that's just where my mind goes. But it was definitely something I picked up on. Uh, why does he need dynamite as well? We see that he is very strong. Uh, he rips the door off the car when he crashes through um, Sean's... When he's after Sean, he crashes through the fence. He rips off the back door of the hearse with little to no effort to get dynamite out to then blow up the kids. He's fucking Dracula. He could kill these kids like that. I don't really understand why he needed dynamite. Just a little thing. Again, these are nitpicks, but it's just things that I'm looking at. I'm like, hang on, that makes no sense. And it kind of detracts me a little from the film. Also, how does Dracula's car turn invisible in some parts, like when he's driving through the police officers, but then it crashes through Sean's front fence? Can he control that? If he can, then he's so goddamn powerful that I don't think that he needs this little amulet thing and, you know, he could kill the kids with ease. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's kind of weird. 
and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but all of these aside, I still found it very enjoyable. And if anything, this makes the film even more enjoyable. I found them funny, these little plot holes. Some of the special effects feel a little dated as well, but that's not really a problem with the movie. You expect that. You have a look at Ghostbusters today, and Ghostbusters effects are pretty trashy. But, you know, it's just that early CGI. You can't really help that. And I don't think it really detracts from the film for me. I can watch it and still enjoy it, even with these dated special effects. Similar to my Killer Clowns from Outer Space review, I'm going to put the theme song for Monster Squad at the end of this video or this podcast. Um, this is such an absurd song. I love it. I just love that in the 80s, this was the thing. It's like, okay, Ghostbusters had a song, so we're going to have a song. So these films all have songs and it is so funny and I absolutely adore it. Um, the Monster Squad song is so cheesy. It's kind of bad, but... It is so funny. And when it started playing at the end, that was all I needed. And I was like, yes, this movie is awesome. I love it. I love that this song exists at the end of the movie. Um, I never heard the song when I watched this movie when I was younger on TV. I don't know if I tuned out in the credits, but I don't remember this song playing at all. And then I found it at the end of it. I'm like, yes, yes, this song is going at the end of this podcast. This song is awesome. I love it. Um, so I will leave that after my review of Tales of Halloween just so you can hear this song because it is so great i love it absolutely love it and that brings my review for the monster squad to a close um i've left a link for it down below please pick it up on blu-ray it is honestly worth it and the more you guys support um shock entertainment the more releases like this they'll be able to do it is a great restoration on blu-ray like i said it still has that little bit of film grain but i absolutely adore it I think that makes me enjoy that Blu-ray a lot more. So thank you again to Shock Entertainment for providing me with that. And please check it out below. It is such a such a blast. And listen for that song at the end. My verdict of Monster Squad. Monster Squad is a classic of the 1980s B-movie genre. It is clever, funny, and charming. Whilst there are many plot holes, um, and more so than there are in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, the film has endless wit and charm. And I just really adored watching it. I'm giving Monster Squad a resounding 8 invisible cars out of 10. Definitely check this one out, guys, because I just had so much fun with it. It was so enjoyable. And yeah, like I said, any movie from the 1980s that has this kind of wit and charm and heart to it, and that's the big thing. A lot of these films have so much heart, and I think that's what makes them as enjoyable as what they are. Because without the heart, they just are nothing. And they can just be disposable horror flicks or disposable family films. But the heart really does want you to, I suppose, revisit these these classics. I would call this a classic. I would. Very loosely, but I would call it a classic. But that's the end of my Monster Squad review. Now let's get into Tales of Halloween. Tales of Halloween is directed by many people and stars many people. This was an anthology Halloween film that was released in 2015 by Epic Pictures. It, I guess compared to other Halloween-esque anthologies and, and anthologies in general, because there's quite a few anthology films that are released year to year, but we don't really hear a lot of them because they are straight to DVD films. Um, the one that I guess people are most synonymous with and aware of is Trick or Treat, the 2007 Michael Dowdy film, which I absolutely adore. One of my favorite Halloween films of all time. One day I will do a review of that one because it's very easy to follow as it's only three uh, segments of the film, four segments, sorry. Uh, and it's the way it's directed. Michael Dowdy is a master and he does a fantastic job in directing that film. And I guess with other anthologies they're just not as interesting as general horror movies you don't have enough time to connect to characters a lot of them are played for comedy and i think because of the lower budgets of these anthologies they're not as enjoyable as what they could be um but what interested me about this film was its metacritic score of about 72 i believe and it's got a 79 percent certified fresh rating on rotten tomatoes so it was something that I wanted to check out. I found it for five bucks at JB Hi-Fi on Blu-ray, so I was cheering, and I thought, yeah, let's do it, let's review it. And I didn't realize how confusing it would be to review an anthology film. I have my notes all taken down here. I do apologize, I'm a bit hazy on a couple of the segments because they just aren't memorable. 
and it's been a couple of weeks since I have seen it. So bear with me. I'll do my best to explain them as well as I can without getting too muddled. It's kind of like an Inception type thing explaining an anthology film and it really shouldn't be that hard, but it is. Um, but yeah, I was excited for this and I think the reason anthology films are good are uh, they give directors a voice. Directors are given a chance to direct a very small segment of a larger film but they are given full creative control on the most part and they can just have free reign and it really gives artistic license to up-and-coming directors. If there's something in there that a studio likes and the director will be picked up and able to direct you know, a feature length, that's the aim anyway. Adam Wingard directed a segment in VHS, uh, uh, not viral, uh, VHS 2 and VHS 1 a few years ago and now he's directing... King Kong vs. Godzilla, so it's funny how it happens, but yeah, I think there's merit to anthology films, but this one was something I was interested in, so let's dive into it. Without further ado, this is Tales of Halloween. So the first segment is called Sweet Tooth, and is written and directed by Dave Parker, and pretty much follows uh, these two babysitters who are babysitting a kid. And they tell him a gruesome story of an urban legend of a kid who was denied candy, killed his parents, ate all the candy, and yeah, he's just got an insatiable hunger for candy. So he's on the on the war path pretty much, and he won't rest, especially on Halloween night, until he gets all the candy. So these two babysitters tell the story to this kid the kid gets put to bed and he's terrified cannot sleep and then the urban legend ends up coming true uh the babysitters are murdered and then we get a like a little halloween-esque reference at the very end of this where the kid looks like he could have possibly been the one who killed everyone but we're not 100 percent sure because it's not really explained it's meant to be ambiguous and he just says i just wanted the candy is the line that i'm um that are pretty much leaves off with but this was something that was very intriguing to me i think it's the best directed segment of the whole anthology dave parker does a really good job here it's something actually i wouldn't mind seeing a not a feature length um i i don't think i could take a feature length version of this film and we've already got one like that with urban legend which is a very trashy early 2000s slasher film if you haven't seen it but i just don't know exactly if I could take a full hour and a half or something like this, but I didn't enjoy it. I think it's, like I said, it's probably the best out of the segments. It's well shot. I like the effects of this weird, um, gruesome, urban legend type bloke. Um, he's like a weird demon, I guess, uh, he ends up being. And I really like the design of him. He looks really creepy and really menacing. And I just like the way that it played out. The babysitter's telling the story, but then the story ends up coming true. It was just cool, and it was well-directed enough for me to enjoy it. It was a great way to start this anthology off. Unfortunately, not all the segments are this good, but this one was pretty good. I'm going to give Sweet Tooth an 8 out of 10. The second is called The Night Billy Raised Hell and was written by Clint Sears and directed by Darren Lynch Bowsman and pretty much follows Billy Thompson absurdly tries to start trick-or-treating early in the afternoon, prompting his older sister Brittany and her boyfriend Todd to trick him into playing a prank that, according to both teenagers, has been going on for years. So they trick their, this younger kid to go and pull off a trick. Uh, he does it to the wrong bloke. The bloke has like a demon who's the same height as Billy um, and replaces Billy for the night. The old man and the demon go on a night of rampage trick-or-treating and pretty much killing people it's pretty brutal um, but this one's played more for comedy and this is what i was talking about some of them are played for horror some of them are played for comedy this is definitely a comedic one it's filmed well enough um darren lynn bowlesman does a pretty good job but i think the way that the story plays out because it is played for comedy and some of the comedy doesn't really land uh, we're meant to be laughing i suppose at what Billy or the demon and this the red devil are doing um or just the devil uh, I guess Billy's kind of the red devil because he's dressed like the red devil but anyway um I like the way that it sort of played out it was pretty funny and it's a cool concept and of course Billy gets blamed for all the crimes that are committed at the end the um segment ends with the police rocking up on the old man's doors Billy's allowed to go free but 
he's being pinned for everything that was committed because it does look like he did it. And yeah, it was it was well directed enough, but uh, considering how good Sweet Tooth was to begin with, the night Billy Ray's Hell just doesn't really live up to it, and it wasn't as good as the first segment. But it was well directed enough that it is enjoyable, and it's probably a segment I would rewatch again. And there's a few that I would skip here, but I would probably rewatch this one. Um, I'll give this one a five out of ten. Uh, the third segment is called Trick, and this was written by Greg Commons and directed by Adam Girash. Um, and on a seemingly peaceful night, friends Nelson, Maria, James, and Caitlin are lounging around Nelson's house smoking pot. As Nelson goes to greet a girl, trick-or-treating, the group is alarmed when the girl stabs Nelson multiple times in the abdomen, gravely injuring him. So that's pretty much the setup of this one. Um, it's pretty good. Uh, I, I like this one. It's played for comedy for the first five minutes. It's just these guys sitting around watching Halloween movies, smoking pot, and it's pretty funny. You know, the banter between them all is pretty good. Nelson's probably my favorite out of the friends too. He's pretty funny. Um, but it gets pretty brutal, and I like the idea of these um, kids, I suppose, attacking this seemingly innocent group of people. Um the group of kids find a shack which turns out to be the place they tortured the previous kids and uh, cornered Caitlin, a girl whose one eye has been gouged by the adults, executes Caitlin with an axe on her head. So pretty much the adults are being blamed for gruesome crimes against these kids, but the these particular um, adults aren't really responsible for it, so it's pretty brutal. I like the setting. I like the different sets too. Um, this shack that they go to, it's got this surgical kind of vibe to it and it's really well lit. That was one thing I did notice about it, but it was well directed enough and it's quite spooky. Um, I guess these unsuspecting people trapped in their own home is kind of creepy, especially the way that they're um, killed off. Uh, but I did enjoy this one more so than the other ones and I'm going to give this one a 7 out of 10. Uh, the next is called The Weak and the Wicked and was directed by Molly Millions and directed by Paul Soleil. Three bullies, Alex, Isaac and Bart, proceed to torture a kid after trick-or-treating but are interrupted by a teenager in a devil costume. The teenager hands Alice a drawing of a demon and warns Alice that the demon will spill the blood of the wicked where the wicked have harmed the weak. Alice dismisses the picture and begins to chase the teenager away with the other bullies to the other side of the city where the teenager stops by a burnt down trailer car. In a flashback when Alice, Bart and Isaac were kids, they were uh, they set the house on fire which belonged to the teenager, complete with his parents inside it. When the bullies show up, recognize the teen as Jimmy Henson and proceed to beat him up and prepare to light him on fire, Bart and Isaac are attacked by an unseen force. This one here was not my favorite. It went really quickly which I suppose is a godsend because the story itself is a bit confusing. Considering each of these segments ranges between 8 and 10 minutes, um, I feel like this one went for too long. It wasn't as enjoyable as the others. The idea of this, these people, I suppose, being blamed, um, well, rightfully blamed for these crimes is a cool premise, but I think it's in the execution. Because you've only got 8 minutes to tell your story, you've got to be in and quick. I think because this one relies on so much backstory, that's where it falls apart. Um, you're spending more time setting up everything that's going on rather than actually just executing general scares. And I think that's where this one lacks. It's something that could be scary because there is an unseen force. There is that comedic tone as well, which I think plagues this one, especially in that little last segment. But it's enjoyable enough. Um, it ends with Alice, as Alice is killed by the demon, blood violently splashes on Jimmy's face, who smiles in satisfaction. So at the end, the kid gets, I suppose, what he wants. The three of them are dead. Um, and yeah, it was okay. Um, and that's what I'm going to say about most of these. It was okay. It's enjoyable enough. Um, but I did like the way that this one was filmed, the nighttime setting. Uh, all of them are set at nighttime, so it's no surprise. But it's just the way that it's executed, and I think it was quite enjoyable. Um, but again, I think it's just bogged down by too much mythology, especially the limited time that you've got to tell this story. So I'm going to give The Weak and The Wicked, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. I was going to give it a 6, but I'm dropping it to a 5 because it was kind of forgettable. Uh, the next is called Grim Grinning Ghost and was written and directed by Axel Caroline. 
As Lynn prepares to leave her mother's Halloween party after hearing her mother recount a ghost story about a girl named Mary Bailey, who was mocked her whole life for her disfigured physical appearance, and now as a ghost takes the eyes of those who look at her, she encounters strange occurrences on her way home. Um, I like this one. This one was really creepy. It was well done. I like that the women are sitting around telling the stories and then she has to walk home by herself because she lives nearby, so it makes sense. And it was really creepy. It was well-directed. Um, I like the mythology explained very quickly and it's done in a way that is kind of forceful, but because it's been, it was already done in the first segment in Sweet Tooth, but I think the way that it's done is effective and creepy and it makes sense. They're telling ghost stories, so of course... It's going to be told this way. But I thought it was well-directed, and I enjoyed this one. Um, there's not a lot to say. Uh, Lynn Shay is actually in this one from the Insidious film. She's great. I love seeing her in anything, so it was nice to see her here. Um, and I really like the way that it's, um, I suppose, um, the way that it was directed and just the way it was executed. Um, we later learn in Bad Seed that she succeeded in taking Lynn's eyesight, but the police dismiss it as hysterical blindness. Um, Bad Seed is the last uh, segment here, so that's cool that all of them intertwine with each other. Um, we see the kids from The Weak and the Wicked, I believe, in Friday the 31st. Don't quote me on that because I can't exactly remember. They're, they appear in two of them, but I think Friday the 31st is one of them, um, which is cool because it just shows that it's all happening on this one night in this small town. So I like that. And here um, it's nice because this the Grim Grinning Ghost and Bad Seed are two of my probably my two favorite segments in the whole thing. I did think Sweet Tooth is probably the best, but they're my two favorites, so I like that they link up like that. But I'm going to give Grim Grinning Ghost, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Um, in context of this story, I think it was really well done and it was quite effective in its scares. The next one is called Ding Dong and was written, by, uh, written and directed by Lucky McNee. Uh, a year prior, Jack and his wife Bobby watch as children trick-or-treat on Halloween night. Bobby is distraught by the fact she has no children of her own, to which Jack tries to cheer her up by dressing their dog as Gretel. This leads things to get heated and ends up with Bobby suddenly turning into a red demonic witch and clawing Jack's face with her long devilish nails. In the present time, Jack and Bobby have prepared to greet trick-or-treaters dressed as Hansel and witch, respectively, to Jack's worry. Uh, this one was really weird. I, don't, I didn't like this one at all. Um... She's pretty much this demonic witch who has Jack under her control because um, she's really hysterical because she can't have children of her own, but she wants the children that are trick-or-treating. And it just progresses and it gets really uncomfortable. I, she was so unlikable. And this real submissive dude, it just made me feel uncomfortable. I don't know if that's what they were going for. I guess so, but I was just really uncomfortable watching it and I just wanted it to be over. Um, it ends pretty much with... Um, Watch. There we go. She drags Jack into the house's oven, which resembles more like hell and ends up melting up herself. Um, this is, yeah, it's just weird. I, I just felt really uncomfortable. The kids are coming to and from the house too, and there's this submissive dude dressed as Hansel, and she's the witch, and it's just, yeah, it's really weird. It's like this weird, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just want, uh, Ding Dong sucks. It's probably my least favorite. Actually, it is my least favorite out of all of these. I'm going to give Ding Dong a 1 out of 10. Yeah, it was just really uncomfortable. Sorry, Lucky McNee, but you didn't really do a good job directing this one. Um, the next one um, is called This Means War and was written and directed by Andrew Cash and John Skip. Boris has proudly finished his Halloween decorated house, but when children are about to greet his house, they are scared away because of his neighbor, Dante who has set up a rock and gore oriented Halloween decorations at the front of his house, complete with loud rock music blasting from the speakers. This one was hilarious. It was really well done. So it's pretty much two neighbors competing with one another for Halloween, and they just try to go bigger and better, and ends up with them fighting and ends brutal for Boris, who ends up... Oh, Dante, sorry. Boris kills Dante. Um, but it's just the way that it's, it's helmed. It is quite funny. They just keep going bigger and better than one another. And I enjoyed it i thought it was funny um and the way it was executed it's not scary but it's just a, a different one i suppose to the other segments here it actually is genuinely funny compared to the ones that try to be funny um but this one here was actually really effective and i enjoyed it 
I liked um, the actor who played uh, Dante, James Deval. He was pretty good. And Dana Gould, who played Boris as well, was pretty entertaining. So this one's one of my favorites as well. It's the best comedic one out of a lot of them. Um, but I'm going to give this one... I'm going to give this one an 8 out of 10. Yeah, it was quite enjoyable. The next is Friday the 31st. Written by Mike Mendez and Dave Parker from the first segment. Um, and directed by M- Mike Mendez. Um, A deformed serial killer who resembles Jason Voorhees hunts a girl dressed as Dorothy for Halloween. The girl runs into a barn where she discovers several of the killer's victims among her friend is Casey. The killer hunts her down to the barn and when she manages to escape and flee, he kills her by throwing a spear through her chest. As the killer celebrates her slaying, a UFO beams down a small alien that tries to trick a treat. This one here was pretty enjoyable. If you're a fan of Friday the 13th, and I'm going to say the Hatchet series too, just because I recently watched Victor Crowley, which I will talk about at the end of this video. Um, I just like the way that it was directed. It's funny. Um, the killer is pretty much a dead ringer between Victor Crowley and Jason Voorhees. Um, and I like his frustration with this little alien. It is really funny. And I liked the dynamic between the two. It's very weird that you want to incorporate, I suppose that's the idea, you incorporate science fiction with this tired horror trope the killer that doesn't seem to be able to die um but it was really entertaining i really like this one um the title of course being a play on friday the 13th calling it friday the 31st which is quite and it's quite funny it's a nice little homage there um and yeah it was classic i suppose representation of what happened to those horror films in the 80s because that's what did happen they just got that absurd um, Jason Goes to Space in Jason X in 2001, I believe that film came out, which not enough people talk about that. That is just insane. Um, it happens in the Leprechaun series, but the Leprechaun films went straight to DVD, so I don't know. I kind of expect that from like, that caliber of film. Um, but I don't know. Jason was a pretty huge horror icon, so for that to happen here, it, it, it's absurd. Not enough people talk about that. But I think that's what uh, Mike Mendez and Dave Parker are getting at. They're trying to, I suppose, sat, uh, add a bit of satire to that tired horror trope of the undead killer. Um, but no, I really enjoyed Friday the 31st. I'm going to give that one an 8 out of 10 as well. Um, the next is called The Ransom of Rusty Rex. When they spot a, me- uh, a millionaire, Jebediah Rex, letting his son Rusty out of trick-or-treating, former bank robbers Hank and Dutch set out their own plan to kidnap the millionaire's son. After succeeding doing so, the kidnappers tied up a still masked Rusty into a chair and call his father. However, the father seems overjoyed that his son has been kidnapped and promptly hangs up the phone. Hank calls him once more to discuss the ransom, but the father coldly tells them they can have his son. Um, this one here was pretty forgettable, if I'm being completely honest. Um, the premise is interesting enough and it gets pretty gruesome towards the end, but I think with this setup you're just not i don't know it's it's a setup that's not as scary as what it should be um i think because of what we what we've had previously as well this feels like a bit of a dud if i was the i suppose the studio here the way i would have structured it would have been to have put either this means war or friday the 31st here rather than having this be the second last one because it's a real dud to lead to an exciting ending. I don't know, I just didn't really like this one. Um, Ryan Shiflin? Shilfrin? We'll go with Shilfrin. Ryan Shilfrin directed this one and wrote it as well, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it was a bit of a letdown compared to the other ones. Um, And yeah, to be honest, like I I don't remember the specifics of it, and I think that's a bit of a a harm here. Um, And... I don't know. I just didn't really enjoy this one. I'm sorry. My throat was just catching then. Um, but yeah, no, I just didn't really enjoy this one. Um, I think the best part of this one is uh, Jebediah Rex is actually played by horror legend uh, John Landis, who, of course, directed um, Werewolf in London, um, which is one of the best horror comedies of all time. I'll definitely call it a horror comedy, um, but with some general scares and great effects. But John Landis is a genre icon, so 
to have him feature here is pretty awesome, but at the same time, it's pretty forgettable. I'm going to give this one a 3 out of 10. Then we finish with the final segment, Bad Seed, written and directed by Neil Marshall. Um, Neil Marshall, of course, from The Descent fame, Dog Soldiers, uh, and unfortunately the most recent Hellboy film, which you can hear my review of what I think of that. Um, I don't like it. Um, that's just putting it plain and simple. But Neil Marshall is a horror icon as well of modern era of cinema. Uh, the Descent films are fantastic. The first one's better than the second one just because the second one falls off the rails a bit. But what he did with the first one using natural lighting, a really creepy atmosphere. And if you haven't seen the poster for The Descent, um, I always thought that it was just a, a skull. I always thought it was a skull, but I never realized that it was actually people um, that made up the skull. It's really creepy. It's a great poster. Check it out if you haven't. Um, but Bad Seed um, follows pretty much after a man has his head bitten off by a massive pumpkin. He has just card. Detective McNally investigates the crime scene. And pretty much it's just a pumpkin on a killing rampage on Halloween night. Um, they go to uh, the place who's making these pumpkins to find out what the go is. Um, and then you find out that it's a 100% organic super pumpkin. McNally and Bob visit the Clover Corp headquarters and discover thousands of genetically modified pumpkins, all potentially dangerous, waiting to be sold. Um, so they put an end to that. So then they go after this one pumpkin that's still just raining havoc. My favorite part of this whole one is because of how absurd it is. The effects of the actual pumpkin are pretty cool. I like the design of it and I like the idea of a killer pumpkin. It's just so absurd and crazy, but I really liked it. Um, I think it's because I have this fascination with jack-o'-lanterns. But my favorite scene was when McNally, pretty much she gets in the car and she drives into the street and it's just like... I won't say hundreds of people. There's probably like a hundred people running down this street, running away from the killer pumpkin. The pumpkin lands itself on her windshield and um, the final blow to to kill it. It was pretty suspenseful. It's well-directed enough. Uh, Neil March Tool is, uh, like I said, a modern horror icon. So I really like the way that he directs this. The writing's pretty weak, but I don't think that's the point. It's played for comedy, like it's a killer pumpkin and Neil Marshall's a better horror director than to make a killer pumpkin movie. So I think he's just having a bit of fun here. And it's one of those things where I feel like if a director has a creative idea for an anthology film and your director is Neil Marshall, you're going to let him do it because he's easily the biggest um, name attached to this project, despite John Landis. But I don't really count that because he's it's a, it's a glorified cameo. Um, but I really liked what Neil Marshall did here. And it's cool to see a director have a bit of fun, make something really absurd like this. Um, but Bad Seed is fantastic. I won't go into too much detail like I haven't for most of these because I want more people to check this out. Um, I don't know of too many people who have actually seen this. I mentioned it to a few of my friends and everyone's like, I don't know what that is. Um, but I think it's just the... I don't know, when that film was released, it was released in the same year as... Uh, I don't know, around that time, I'm just trying to think of horror films that came out in 2015. You know, you had an Insidious sequel. I believe the horror film that Halloween was Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimensions, which flopped at the box office. Um, this didn't get a cinematic release, though, which is kind of a shame. It did for a limited period over in the US, but I feel like it actually would have made a bit of cash just because it has Halloween in the title as well, which is a shame, but obviously Epic Pictures didn't want to promote the film, didn't want to waste money on marketing but this is an enjoyable anthology series i guess of films um check it out if you haven't already uh, a lot, like i said a lot of people haven't overall i would give this one a seven out of ten um more it's closer to a six but it's not quite an eight so i'm just going to chuck it in the middle here um at a seven it, it's enjoyable enough there's more good than there is bad um but segments like that um the Weak and the Wicked can go fuck itself because it was just terrible. Um, it really, really wasn't very good at all. Um, and also Ding Dong. Yeah, made me uncomfortable. Don't want to ever watch that again. But that's Tales of Halloween. Check it out if you haven't already and let me know if you do check it out. I have a mailbag question as well, which I'll be touching on. My good friend Hayden uh, sent through this one. Um, and he asked... What is my favorite slasher villain of all time? Um, this was a question I wanted to answer now because, um, let's be honest, 
it's Halloween. Uh, slasher films play better over Halloween. But it's a good question. So thank you for that, good friend Hayden. Um, this one, it's hard to break them up. I would say that uh, all of them have their own merits. Jason is an undead killer, like Freddy Krueger is. Freddy Krueger plays in more to the supernatural. Jason does later down the track, but they're in the bad sequels. If you're watching more for the pure entertainment, I think both of these are cut out by Michael Myers because I feel like there's more there's more good in the Halloween series than there is in probably Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th combined. But they're your three main states. I'm going to throw in Ghostface from the Scream series, not the television show. I've, tr I've given that television show so many chances and each time I just cannot stand to get through it. But Ghostface is a great and it's iconic in, the I guess, the design of the character. But because Billy Loomis plays Ghost... Oh, Billy Loomis and Stu in the first one and the second one, it's his mum and the guy that's in her class and... In the, th the last one, it's the niece and Rory Culkin's character. I can't even remember what his name is in Scream 4. But it's not the one person. It's played by duos in each, each installment of the, of the franchise. But I think I like Ghostface more because I enjoy the Scream films the most. There's only four entries in the franchise, but all four entries are pretty solid. Scream 1 and 2 are fantastic, and I actually really like Scream 4. It's not as satirical as what it should have been when it came out, considering there was such a big gap. Screen 3 feels like a cash grab. It's my least favorite entry, but I would still give it a positive review. I'd probably give it a 6 out of 10. Um, all of them had their merits, I suppose. So if I'm going straight villain, Michael Myers is my favorite. Freddy Krueger is really cool. Wes Craven created... Um, Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, of course, with Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984 classic. Um, and Wes Craven also created the Scream franchise, so a bit of trivia if you didn't already know that. But Wes Craven is regarded as the master of suspense, and I would agree with that because what he did with Scream was reinvent the horror genre in a time when we were getting just constant drabble of just terrible horror sequels. It was just an onslaught, and I... I guess because I've grown up more in the 2000s, we haven't really had that. The Saw franchise is the closest example of that, I suppose, to a certain extent, the Paranormal Activity franchise as well. But they were all slusher characters. Nightmare on Elm Street has seven entries, not including the remake. Friday the 13th has... How many does that have? That has 10, 11, 12 entries, not including the remake. And that's including Freddy vs. Jason. Nightmare on Elm Street, like I said, yeah, has the seven. Um, Halloween has eight, nine now with Halloween 2018, not including the Rob Zombie films. So you have a think of the period of time that these came out. Halloween was the first with 1978 for the first film. And then Halloween Resurrection concluded just that mess because all the films were just trying to forget each other and it was just a real mess um and then we had friday the 13th the rights were sold from paramount to new line in 1993 and we got jason goes to hell um a nightmare on elm street it ran i'm pretty sure we nearly got a nightmare on elm street film every two years in the period of time it ran before we got wes craven's new nightmare which is a really good horror flick as well and i think that was the setup and the ideas that sort of sparked his resurgence with the Scream franchise. It's really interesting, actually, when you watch um, those two films back-to-back, -back, just seeing the mechanics of Wes Craven's beautiful mind work. Um, may he rest in peace, too, because, yeah, he was he had a lot of flops, but he had a lot of hits, too. Um, but, yeah, I, I've gone on a tangent. But, yeah, my, my favourite slasher villain is Michael Myers. I think he's been more consistent over the years. I like his influence a lot more. The design of the character, he's wearing overalls and has a, a William Shatner mask. Like, it's simple, but it's effective. Freddy's design's always been cool. I love Robert Eglund as Freddy. Um, he's very comedic, uh, and I like some of his, some of his little quips. Um, my favorite is from Dream Warriors when he pulls the chicken to the TV and he says, welcome to primetime, bitch. Fantastic. Love it. 
Um, the Friday the 13th series, Jason has no character really. Uh, he has backstory, but doesn't have character. And I think that's where I distinguish between Jason and Michael. Michael doesn't really have character, but we get that opening sequence in the original Halloween film, which I think is better than anything the Friday the 13th series has to offer. Um, but I own all of the Friday the 13th movies on Blu-ray. Don't get me wrong. I'm not shitting on that, but yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. So I'm going to go, my official rank would be Michael Myers followed by Ghostface in his many iterations. I love, um, the voice of Ghostface. It's always been fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go Freddy Krueger as my third out of the, the main slasher villains. And I think last I'll go with Jason. There's other slasher villains out there. Candyman, he only has the three entries thus far with a new Candyman film coming out next year. And I love the first Candyman film, but I like it not so much as a slasher flick. I just like it as a film. It's a really well-made film, and I don't think enough people talk about that. Uh, Farewell to the Flesh, directed by Bill Condon, the sequel, sucks. But Tony Todd's still in it, and him as Candyman is always welcome. Uh, and apparently is returning next year, too. We haven't seen any footage yet or anything. Uh, Billy from Black Christmas is another slasher villain. I'm not a big fan of him. Um, we have Sickle from the Sickle franchise. I don't really like him either. Uh, Charles Lee Ray, Chucky, of course, um, but I don't classify him really as a slasher villain. I guess you could, but he's more of a supernatural entity. But then again, Freddy is... I don't know, I'm questioning myself now. If I was to chuck Chucky in there, Chucky would be above Freddy, but not as high as Ghostface and Michael. But yeah, that would probably be my, my ranking. And I mean, you can chuck Leprechaun in there too. It gets too convoluted if you think of all of them, but that's pretty much it. That's my long answer to that question. But thank you for the questions. I do enjoy answering them. As muddled as I may be sometimes, I still really do um, enjoy answering questions like that. I will have another one um, for my next review, which will be Ghoulies 1 and 2, um, another episode in my Halloween Spectacular, so stay tuned for that. Like I said earlier, um, Victor Crowley is a film, the 2017 reboot of the franchise. I'll be reviewing as well, along with Jeepers Creepers 3. Uh, this will be a part of the Halloween Spooktacular, but not really. I'm going to release this one probably on the 2nd or 3rd of November, um, and I'm going to call it The Halloween Hangover, just to keep the horror ball rolling, because I will be reviewing more horror films more frequently, because uh, it is my favorite genre, of course but without diminishing the fact that I will be doing a Halloween Spooktacular for years to come, hopefully. But that's it. That's all I have to say. This has been a long review. I do apologize, but I hope you enjoy listening. Uh, let me know if you've seen either one of these films, Monster Squad and, of course, uh, Tales of Halloween. Uh, Monster Squad, fantastic. Link down below for you guys to purchase that one. Um, I'd appreciate if you did too, because cult cinema have been fantastic to me with uh, giving me these films to review for you guys which has been awesome so thank you very much shock entertainment slash cult cinema for that and link down below to purchase any of those titles as well browse their website there's plenty of films uh on there um hideaway a recent release by them actually a jeff goldblum forgotten film from the 1990s if you haven't seen hideaway please check it out it is absurd i will review that one day i last part of the film when Jeff Goldblum's running around town with a shotgun and no one's questioning him and he just looks insane. It's fantastic. But that brings this episode to a close. Thank you all for listening. Uh, send through any mailbag questions to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com. It is greatly appreciated and I'll answer more of them coming up like I have been. Uh, and I really do enjoy doing this, guys. So thank you very much. And until next time, peace out. Just a quick edit, guys. I did forget to mention Leatherface in my ranking of slasher villains. So my official ranking will go, number one is Michael Myers. Number two is Freddy Krueger. Number three, I'm going to throw in Ghostface. Number four is Chucky or Charles Lee Ray. Number five is Leatherface. And then capping it all off at number six, I will have Jason. I did change Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger and Scream's Ghostface around, but realistically they could go either or. But that's just a little uh, correction, little edit. Sorry about that. Peace out, guys, and enjoy the Monster Squad song at the end of this podcast. Peace.
lift in might. Well, who will stand up for the right? From the mouth of babes comes dynamite. The monster squad gonna groove tonight. First game Dracula, now the Wolfman too. Mummy and the creature from the Black Lagoon. We need silver bullets, we need wooden sticks. Normal stuff won't stop because they live on hate. Speak some magic words from a virgin slip. Maybe that'll shake him, make him slip and trip. There's no turning back, gotta fight the fight. Yeah, the monster squad gonna jam tonight. Monster Squad We're the Monster Squad And the forces of evil Better run and hide Monster Squad We're the Monster Squad And the forces of evil Let's be Squad. We're the Monster Squad and the 